Heavenly Father, thank you. We're humbled to consider that you are indeed our Heavenly Father and that that was a great transaction, spiritually speaking, where you reached out to us and called us into your very presence in a most uh, amazing, wonderful way. And uh, we're well aware, Father, that our own desires, our own inclinations of heart, mind, and spirit were quite otherwise engaged uh, during our lives. But, Father, that you have your ways of reaching out to us, and uh, your ways are most uh, marvelous, most wonderful and truly miraculous. So, Father, thank you again for for that and that you gathered us here together, Father, today to consider the precious words of grace and uh, to understand them better. And, Father, we wouldn't be here gathered today apart from your great work in us and through others that, that spoke boldly when uh, it was needed and uh, because of that uh, we heard words that otherwise we might not have heard you raised up those that would be willing and able to minister to us so father for some it was many years ago others more recently but but father whenever it is that you Open our hearts to your precious truth, Father. It's just a great, great miracle indeed, without which none of us could ever be saved. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for each one here today and all those that we'll hear later. And uh, as we praise your name, Father, and thank you for all things, uh, may we all realize that everything that we have is a gift. It's all a gift, Father, uh, from your good hand towards us and uh, all that we have is therefore something that has value that it's far beyond what we might have thought uh, even life itself uh, has value far beyond anything we can imagine because father you use that life to bring us into your presence and then into eternal relationship so father thank you for uh, working in your ways uh, in the hearts of many. Even today, many are being saved. We know that. We know that they're being called into the realm of your grace and truth, Father, and uh, they are being transformed by your power. And we just thank you for that, Father. We thank you for all those that will uh, listen to this uh, later. Uh, There are so many now, and we're so thankful. Father, we do have concerns. We're thankful, though, for those that are bold enough to speak forth at graduation events uh, and uh, for this one who has so boldly spoken. And many have taken note of that and in agreement have uh, indicated their support. And it's gone all over the world uh, electronically. So, Father, I pray that that would in itself be used to guide and lead others to seek the truth where otherwise they might not never have looked before. We well remember the day when we sought truth in a place we hadn't looked before and found it. What a blessing. What a blessing. 
Father, I, I pray for the situation uh, our nation is in and others are in in the world and with much instability these days with, with the great powers of the world uh, exercising their power in ways that are threatening to all. And uh, we know that when unexpected things happen and maybe mistakes are made easily by those who have their fingers on the trigger, as it were. Father, I pray that you would restrain that. I pray that you'd bring reason to play and uh, that those in high places would consider the consequences of their actions and their words and uh, might act accordingly, Father, to uh, restabilize these things that have been so thoroughly broken over the last years, Father, that our world is just like a tinderbox. And we just pray, Father, for uh, those that have their political interests dominating them rather than the well-being of our people. We pray that you deliver us from the lies of the enemy. And those lies are everywhere. So, Father, I pray that you would enable each of us to always seek truth and never receive an exception, even enjoy the lies of the enemy, as so many are. Father, may we be bold to speak forth words that you could use to draw others into the realm of eternal glory. So, Father, please open our hearts now as we look into your word. May it be a great blessing to us. In Christ's name, amen. Praise God. Okay, well, we continue today. Remember, we're doing an overview of the major themes in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and we're taking four, uh, four times to do that. Last time, we looked at a lot, really. Um, themes last time were that there were certain fundamentals that Paul expressed in his letters. Uh, sometimes multiple ones in every sentence on occasion. It was difficult, really, to to uh, analyze it carefully uh, for that reason. And so I singled out some of the main things that Paul considers fundamentals. And one of the greatest, of course, if not the very greatest of all, always is that of the testimony of God himself, the Lord God himself, his testimony that underlies everything else. It certainly undergirded Paul in his life and ministry. And so his testimony was a consequence of that, because what did he do but testify of the Lord and the Lord's great work under grace everywhere he went. And so that was Paul's testimony based, of course, on the testimony of the Lord God himself and of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Then there was the testimony of the Corinthian believers that Paul emphasized so much. He had great confidence in them, a confidence sometimes which seems unbounded. It, it seems unrealistic to us to consider that this church that had been so led astray by others and and so captured again by the lusts of the flesh and of the mind um, there in Corinth, that 
could be an example of the great work of God again. And uh, yet Paul had incredible confidence that that would occur and that his letters would be used by God in the hearts of many. And so he didn't falter in his confidence there, but he did believe that his own influence as apostle might be necessary to bring this about even face to face. So he planned a visit there, and we spent quite a lot of time looking into that. Uh, I'm not going to give a further review now, because some of these same themes will be repeated again today. Today, our outline is simple, and that is that there were three critical issues in Corinth, and all of them actually still dominate today. <laughs> so that's not unique to Corinth, where uh, the enemy would work, and he would work as he could. And so there were three critical issues in Corinth that still dominate today. And uh, we need to take note of this, or we'll be caught up in the same problem uh, that the Corinthians were. Those three are, first of all, carnality. Secondly, compromise. And thirdly, satanic influence. Carnality, compromise, and satanic influence. And so we start out with carnality, the first of the three critical issues in Corinth that still dominate today. Number one carnality. And I'd like Gail, Gail, please read for us those three verses where Paul very, very powerfully writes of the issue in Corinth regarding carnality. Gail? Again, thank ye that we excuse ourselves unto you. We speak before God in Christ, but we will do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as you would not, lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults, and lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Thank you, Gail. Well, when we reached a few weeks ago, end of that chapter and read these words, I'm sure all of us felt a burden on our hearts for anyone so caught up in such matters as that. I mean, we have surely been delivered like they were, from these many uh, issues of life. These are the issues of carnality, right? He makes a long list there of them. But the Corinthians, though they had been delivered from that, had in some cases gone right back into it. And so that was uh, the concern of Paul, that that might have ended completely for all of them, he knew that it had ended for one in particular who he had singled out, you know, and there was a necessity to single that person out as he wrote his first letter to them. That man was involved in evil that's unspeakable 
even amongst the Gentiles, he said. And uh, that person, though, had repented. And so the issue now was whether the the other believers would receive him back into fellowship because they had expelled him from their fellowship uh, until his repentance was realized. And so what Paul learned was that they had received him back into the fellowship in for the most part, but there were still some holding out, and he was very concerned about that and wrote much in the second letter about it. We've looked at that before. Um, but Paul was concerned that when he arrived in at Corinth, that he might find some still unwilling uh, to receive that believer back into their fellowship, or even worse, that he might find others who are themselves caught up in the works of the flesh. And uh, we could look in Galatians 5 to learn more about the works of the flesh, but the list that Paul gives in Galatians 5 of those works, and that's not a complete list, he says, because at the end of that list, he says, and such like, right? And here we have, <laughs> in some ways, an even longer list given of what those works of the flesh are all about. Now, Corinth was a place where evil was rampant. I mean, do you understand uh, what Paul is writing? Perhaps not, because maybe we haven't ever lived in such a, an environment as that, right? <clears throat> it would be like... Um, Uh, what do they call it? Uh, I'm forgetting the street names. Uh, Market Street. Market Street, San Francisco. We knew what that was in, in 1965 and 6 and 7. We were there uh, nearby and crossed the bay there. But uh, it's far worse now. San Francisco has been overwhelmed by evil. And uh, yet, I think Corinth was not much different from that. Corinth was the center in that area, at least. It was a great port city, so people came in from all over the uh, the trading world um, on ships and uh, overland as well, and uh, participated in the evil that was being promoted there. And it was being promoted religiously. There were many temples in Corinth. Some of them still remain today. The main one was a great temple indeed. It had 48 pillars. Today, only I think seven or eight of those pillars remain. But if, if you look at pictures online and imagine what it would be like when the whole building were there, and in the very center of it, brass uh, images that were very large of the various gods and goddesses of the Greek uh, panoply of gods, right, that were worshipped there. But connected with that worship was sin and evil, and it was being promoted openly, and it was pro being promoted publicly, and uh, many, as a result, were captured by it. But that these believers might be drawn back into that after having been delivered from it to the preaching and then work of Almighty God 
using Paul's message in their hearts, right, that they would be drawn back into it might seem quite uh, amazing to us today, but it shouldn't. It shouldn't. Uh, and as we go on today, I think you'll 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 gain. A, I hope you gain a appreciation for how subtle the enemy is, and how easily he can draw away believers from the truth through his lies. Okay. So there in Corinth, you had the temples to Apollo, the temples to Poseidon, Athena, and others. And uh, that was the center of the Greek religious worship there. There weren't too many other cities in the ancient Greek world where there were greater evil being propagated than in Corinth. Perhaps Ephesus was a place where it was even greater, or Athens. But this was certainly a great work of Satan indeed that was operational there in that place. And so Paul says here that uh, he doesn't want to come to Corinth and be other than edifying. He wants to build them up, not take them down by strong words and by the humbleness that he knew the Lord would bring into him there if he found what he didn't want to find when he arrived. He says, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Now, how could these believers, so well taught by Paul, he was there 18 months at least, teaching, uh, and you can perhaps not even conceive of how great Paul's teaching was for 18 months, and yet many had turned aside, uh, at least to some degree, some greatly, right? How did it happen? Well, he uses the word here, a couple of words here, to indicate how it might have happened. And even more words in other letters. And I'll have Jerry read to us these words out of Second Timothy. Right at the end of Paul's life, right at the end of his life, in his last letter, he writes these words to Timothy. So, Jerry, would you please read 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 8. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Oh, thank you, Jerry. Now, those are words that we should never forget. They should be written on our souls, never to depart, because that exhortation stands there for us today, does it not? Because we are suffering the same kinds of threats to our uh, well-being spiritually that uh, the Corinthians were, right? And we're all aware of the progression that uh, the apostle reveals how things develop, right? And uh, you see words here that uh, we need to take note of in this for, in the Second Timothy passage. He uses these words, the time will come. <laughs> and I wonder, I wonder whether he's implying to Timothy, sorry, whether Paul was uh, implying to Timothy that the times were upon them. In other words, if, if you say the time's going to come when all of these things happen, Timothy, take note, right? Well, uh, no doubt these things were already taking place, and it was uh, something that Timothy, who will now need to take Paul's place because Paul's uh, time of departing was near, that he would need to know to carry out his ministry in Paul's place, right? And so the times were upon them, and they continue today. Notice he uses the word lusts there uh, in verse 3 of 2 Timothy 4. Uh, After their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Why are lusts involved, you might wonder? It says they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust. So uh, I, I believe the reason is sound doctrine is healthy doctrine, and it is uh, definitely going to be focused on uh, the truth of God. <laughs> and anything contrary to that would be designed to encourage the flesh, right? And to promote it even is a good thing. And don't we see that everywhere today, right? It says here that uh, because of their lusts, they'll seek teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. Scratch their itching ears, you know? And then he goes on and he says, uh, they'll turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. And I've told you before about uh, some who were leaders. Uh, I think in, in the case I'm mentioning now, he was, a was I think he's passed away, but he, he was a professor of, uh, I believe it was anthropology, maybe, maybe archaeology at Harvard. And uh, he said, well, of course, uh, we know <laughs> that uh, these theories about uh, evolution and so forth, we know that they're false. I mean, this is a, this is a very distinguished uh, Harvard um, professor saying this and writing it, and it's recorded, right? We know that doctrine of evolution is false. 
But we have no choice but to believe it, because if it's true that God has created all things, then he is going to uh, hold us accountable. And we have determined to enjoy life here to the max. And that means rejecting the truth of God in favor of the lies of men. Okay, so that's a great, well-known Harvard professor, right, who admits that. So many heap to themselves teachers because of their own lusts. What do they turn themselves to, he says here? When they turn away from the truth, they, he says, they shall be turned unto fables. Fables are stories. Stories are everywhere today. What do you hear but stories? Everything is, quote, anecdotal. That just means here's some little thing that we, we can say is true, and but it, it represents truth, maybe in a very perverse sense, right? Uh, and somehow we're expected to receive that in the place of, of the truth of God, right? And uh, not only that, but the teachers and preachers of our day so often have turned against Paul, and they are telling themselves uh, over and over stories upon stories upon stories. And stories can communicate, but they do not necessarily communicate the truth. And they certainly don't communicate the truths that Paul has written in his letters very well at all. Okay, so turning away from Paul means turning away from his word. That means uh, uh, receiving the truth that he's taught there instead of the stories of the enemy and the lies of the enemy. Ultimately, this all leads to lies, the lies of the enemy, that he, being a very creative person indeed, is able to present through stories that uh, lead many astray. Notice he says, though, there's a great promise given to those that will endure suffering for Christ and not compromise. And he says concerning himself, I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only but unto all them also that love is appearing. Well, is the hope of that kind of eternal blessing uh, awakening us uh, to the necessity of never compromising and always cleaving to the truth of grace and being bold for it when Others may not want to hear. They may persecute us. They may drive us from our places of employment. They may uh, threaten us with life itself, right? Some of us have in, have suffered that. Uh, but is the prospect of such eternal blessing as the crown of righteousness motivating us? I sure hope it is. Well, let's go on to the second point of the three critical issues in Corinth that still dominate today. Compromise. 
compromise. Now, compromise is a very subtle enemy, and that's why Satan uses it. Paul had concerns concerning many issues in Corinth, but in general, they all were based upon compromise. It seems that the false teachers there, in order to promote the common faith, as it were, the common faith of, from their point of view, the common faith was a mix of Jewish mysticism and Greek religion and philosophy. It was very legalistic in nature. The false teachers were Jews, and they were promoting a perversion of Moses' law that was in some way compatible with the uh, false beliefs that were common in Corinth amongst unbelievers. And uh, we can't even maybe conceive of what that mixture might have been like. But it was real and it was compelling for many. And uh, even these believers were sometimes caught up in these lies, right? And it compromised even the truth itself and even to the extent that the gospel of grace was being perverted. And so it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul was so concerned for those in Corinth. And it's true today, as it was then, and we read elsewhere in the Bible about, especially in the New Testament, about the way the enemy works. And I put notes uh, on the handout regarding that. You can look into it further. But if we just go on here and look at what's written in Corinthians, his second letter will will know everything we need to know. So, Linda, I'd like you to read more about it for us, how this compromise works to lead many astray. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 through 12. Do ye look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trust to himself that he is Christ. Let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ, even so are we Christ. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed. That I may not seem as I would terrify you by letters, for his letters say they are mighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such as one think this, that such as we are in word by letters when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Okay, thank you, Linda. So we see how the enemy works to minimize the truth of those that boldly proclaim it. They focus on trivialities. They focus on accidental things concerning outward appearance or the way we look or the way we sound. Maybe we speak very, very well. Maybe we don't. Uh, Maybe we've been trained up in the right institutions of higher learning, maybe not. Uh, But comparing 
in the worldly sense, uh, one might draw conclusions entirely contrary to the truth about who really is God's faithful servant, who is therefore worthy to be listened to when they speak. So Paul, he wrote letters, they said, which seemed authoritative and powerful. But the fact of the matter is that he was himself discredited by his outward appearance and the way he spoke in person so that one should reject him in favor of the false teachers who uh, they could say met the standards of the day, right, of the elites of the day. Okay, so uh, if one is going to consider things in that regard superficially, one might uh, come to false conclusions. And so Paul says, don't be deceived. Okay, if we're focused on that which is not spiritual, but that which is carnal, that which is superficial, matters of appearance, then we're open to the enemy's attacks most easily, right? For if we compare ourselves with others, the enemy will surely gain the advantage. And that's a, a very important lesson to learn because we live in a world today when the various media uh, sources are able to convince many as to who should be rightfully heard, who should be listened to, what teachers should be uh, honored, which ones should be dishonored uh, based upon such things as the way they spoke or wrote or how many books they've published or what kind of study Bible they have produced or uh, how large their congregation or congregations are, because using the Internet, they have uh, satellite assemblies all over the world, right? And uh, such like as that, okay? If that's how we are going to, to consider those that are presented to us, Paul says we will be led astray. And so in that day, they didn't have the technology, but they did have the same challenges that we have today. Paul, as you well know, and it'll be something we'll focus on later uh, as we give the overview of the great themes here in Corinthians, the second letter. But Paul responded to those threats by defending his apostleship in a most wonderful way. And we'll look at that next time to see how he actually did it. And it is a major theme in the letter, right? Do you remember uh, in chapter 10, he wrote these words, I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, 
casting down imaginations in every vain thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Amen. Now, if we had the same heartfelt concern regarding his truth and abounding grace, if, if only we had it always, right? Then the power of God would be behind the weapons of warfare that we have chosen to use. Otherwise, the weapons of our warfare will be carnal, as they were for the false teachers, you see. So it takes discernment to know these things, right? And to not be led into compromise, which only leads to bondage to a religious system that leads one ultimately in the wrong direction and doesn't bring spiritual blessing at all. It cannot, right? Now, we all know about this because we see in ourselves the progression. We've seen it before, right? We know how uh, the world influences the flesh. We know how the desires of the flesh, when they're manifested, crowd out spiritual interests. Ultimately, completely, right? We we know how easily it it is for believers to end up set aside spiritually and spend hours and days or months or, or years even enslaved by the lies of the enemy. So we absolutely must remember these words of the Apostle Paul so that that is not what happens to us. And he goes on in the next section, the next um, thing we'll look at today. Perhaps it's the most important of all, but that's that Satan is the one influencing so many in Corinth and around us today. That's the third critical issue still dominating today, the work of Satan. Now, Paul writes about this very boldly there. And let's read that. Tom, would you read for us those three verses? 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 3. Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Hey, Amen. Thank you, Tom, so much for reading that for us. And uh, <laughs> I guess the next thing we must do is to find out what that uh, uh, subtlety was that Satan used with Eve so long ago, right? And would you please read verses 1 through 6 
in Genesis 3 for us. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Thank you, Anne. There's so much there. We could spend all day just talking about it, couldn't we? <clears throat> well, notice how the arch enemy of God's people worked with Eve's mind and heart regarding the truth that Adam had taught her. Remember, Adam was the teacher. He had been told by God concerning uh, this, uh, this tree uh, that bore fruit that they absolutely must not partake of and what the consequence of, of that would be, right? So Adam had taught Eve, and um, we don't know how much time passed, probably some at least, Right. Um, but remember, they, they didn't have a fallen nature at all. All they knew was who God was. They walked with him, talked with him, had perfect fellowship. There was nothing separating them from from God. Right. Nothing at all. Um, and yet. Um, <laughs> The serpent, who is, of course, uh, the devil, the enemy, Satan himself, uh, is able to entice Eve in a very subtle way. And if you carefully read the words here, you'll uh, see how subtle it was. Right. Look at the words he uses. He uses words she doesn't even understand. New words that she hasn't heard, like evil or like gods in the plural, right? Hmm. Uh, and he says he contradicts what Adam has told her, right? And Adam communicated to Eve what the word of God was, right? And the commandment of the Lord, right? And Satan contradicts it. He says, you shall not surely die. And then he, he gives a story, right? He tells a great lie that uh, she might very well be willing to believe. For God doth know that in the day ye eat of it, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. That's very carefully crafted by uh, uh, the great deceiver, right? <laughs> the great liar, the one who was a liar from the beginning and a murderer in the beginning, right? Those words were words that 
Satan crafted specifically for Eve that her imagination might work and that she might consider that, oh, a new kind of food. I mean, she'd already been enjoying all the other food that the Lord had provided. <clears throat> and good food is good. It feels good to eat. Uh, who would not want a new kind, right? Okay. And then he says, <clears throat> you'll be as gods. Hmm. It's a whole realm of imagination there, right? Of gods knowing good. Yes, she already knew that. And evil? What's that? She didn't know that. Okay, so it's very carefully crafted. Those were words were ones that could draw Eve's imagination into uh, something overpowering her, like a new kind of food, a different kind of pleasure, perhaps, than she had ever experienced before. So, oh my, so common are such lies today. And they're everywhere, aren't they? For Satan and his subjects are at work today just as he was then. And so the strong exhortation should be heard by all of us today, right? So that we may steadfastly focus on his word of grace and never be led astray. <clears throat> And Paul prayed and hoped that the Corinthians would receive his words in this letter in that way. So, what else can we say as we close today? Well, Paul wrote to the Corinthians uh, in those next verses in chapter 11, right after the ones Tom just read for us. He speaks directly against the false teachers who he calls false apostles, right? And he says they're preaching Jesus. Oh, but it's not the same Jesus. It's a different one. It's a Jesus of a different sort, okay? Oh, they're preaching spirituality. Oh, but it's not the same spirit. It's a spirit of a different sort. He's saying, I'm telling you this. You don't know this. But I'm telling you, that Jesus is not the true Jesus. They are preaching a false Jesus. That spirit is not the true spirit. They're preaching a false spirit. And uh, they're preaching a gospel. And it is not the true gospel. It is a false gospel. So you see the progression here. It goes from desires and things that the mind might get wrapped around to things of the flesh and ultimately contradicts even the gospel itself. So how important is it to cleave to the truth, therefore? And uh, so Paul <laughs> now... Um, continues on because there's an, the ultimate threat is that if they're going to cast off the words of Paul and the teaching of Paul, right, they're also going to cast the apostle off and place themselves in as true apostles. And that's exactly what they did. Okay. So you see the progression. Uh, it takes a lot of discernment to... Uh, to think properly about these things because the enemy is just that subtle. <clears throat>
Okay, so we're getting close here. Patty, I'd like you to read four verses that will take us where we need to be as we close today. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 12 through 15. But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is of no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Thank you. So in the final analysis, the greatest threats come from false teachers. So because once your mind and heart are taken away from the truth, you will believe their lies. And that leads to total bondage to their religious system. Okay, so Paul very strongly exhorts the Corinthians and we need to be exhorted too. Uh, it's not any different today. Satan is um, and always has been thoroughly evil. <laughs> the Lord himself said uh, something about that. Sarah, would you read for us out of John chapter 8, verse 44 <laughs> about Satan? Ye of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and a father of it. Thank you, Sarah. And so, if Satan is at work in the world today, and we know that he is, his main weapon is lies. And they are subtle enough to capture the hearts and minds even of believers. And the less we've been instructed in the truth of God, the more readily we are open to the lies of the enemy. And he uses uh, things that just like those false teachers did that in that day, right? Popularity with the people, reputation among religious leaders, their skill perhaps in reading a message, which is really canned <laughs> really it's satan's words uh, that they're just very good in communicating they have great people skills they graduated from the right seminary they're the pastor of the largest church in town they have a beautiful family i mean we could make we could make the list it would be a very 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 long list right but what about the truth of god's word does that count and what is it how much does it count right how much really well, it ought to count so much that it controls our decision-making, it controls our attitudes, our priorities, <laughs> our willingness even to suffer for Christ's sake, right? And may we never fail to do so. And remember, 
there's a promise. That promise in 2 Timothy chapter 4 is valid today, right? All who truly love his appearing will receive a crown of righteousness. But many will turn aside. Many. I hope and pray it won't be any of us. Lord bless you all. And if there are any comments, uh, now is the time. Any comments today before we go to the Lord in prayer? Okay. Then let's pray. Heavenly Father, the word that we have considered today is truly important. Considering that our circumstances are not inherently different from the ones the Corinthians faced, Father, I pray for us all that you would so grip our hearts and minds, so grip our spirits, that as Paul exhorted the Corinthians, we would uh, cast aside every filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting holiness in the sight of God. In your sight, Heavenly Father, for truly, Father, your good hand is rest upon us. And may we be satisfied with the riches of your grace and need nothing more, because as you've said so powerfully to Paul, your grace is always sufficient. So, Father, I pray that it would be sufficient for us in every circumstance of life. We know the challenges in life are many, perhaps far greater than we ever, ever dreamed. And yet, Father, we know that as you've been faithful in the past, you will be faithful in the future. So, Father, thank you for your love and kindness, which is overwhelming us so often when we consider it properly. Father, may we enjoy your hand upon us and your work within us, and may we be bold to share this transforming truth to others, whatever the consequence. And we would thank you, Father, in Christ's name and amen.